Christian is, is such an important part of our, our lives as, as followers of Jesus Christ because it defeats that, the final enemy of death, the one that the tyrants often use and try to hold over us. And in that regards, I saw an article that just I thought was amazing not that long ago. It was about a 30-something 30, 30 uh, Adam Ronning, who's a resident of Brooklyn Park. And he's a busy husband, father, worker, who, like many, many Minnesotans, pays his taxes on a, out of uh, his paycheck on a biweekly basis. But one difference with him is the IRS declared him dead when he was four years old. So he, some 30 years ago, they declared him dead. And some, this came back a number of years ago in 2009. He got a note on his tax return. You're not allowed to claim yourself as a deduction because you're dead. That was an actual statement that he got in his tax return. And he, his mother tried, and she thought she had it resolved, but it's still in the grips of the federal government, the Department of Treasury, the IRS. They still consider him dead, even though he spent hours and hours and months and weeks and years on trying to get this all cleared up. They still had this problem to the point where the last couple of years, he can't get his full refund. If he has a refund on taxes that he's paid, he can't get his refund because they said, well, we don't pay refunds to people who are dead. And he goes, I'm alive. Well, it says you're dead here, so we can't pay you. Now, you know full well, if he tried not to pay his taxes, the IRS would come after him and find him, right? We know they would. But he can't get his money back, refund, because they declared him dead. He needs a resurrection. Alan, he needs a resurrection from the IRS. And I thought, this, this is so much what, like what we need in Jesus Christ. We need a resurrection of Christ so that we can live fully into him. Because as it, death is the weapon of evil. Of those who kidnap, of those who hold hostage, of those who threaten, they threaten so that we fear them because they said, we can inflict death upon you. That's their weapon. And their threat of death and its finality in their mindset, because if, if death is the end, then death is the ultimate weapon. Because if there is no more, it's that ultimate weapon which they can hold over us and cause us to do what they want us to do. But Praise God. It's where the power of the resurrection has broken into our lives as Christians so that this is not the threat that they think it has because we have hope knowing that death is not the finality. It's not the end scene. There is something more because the resurrection of Christ and his promise for us holds for us greater hope. And we've been talking about this over the last weeks, and we're continuing on in 1 Corinthians 15. And as Paul goes and spends so much time, because this is at the heart of our faith, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And so it behooves us to spend time in it and continue to reflect on it so that we're never forgetting, we're never overly influenced by those who want to deny it or deny its power. And Jesus makes his great claim in Matthew 10, 28, where he says, do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. And why can he make that statement? Because of the resurrection of what he has done and his victory that we can share in. So the resurrection defeats the threat of death, where we don't have to fear it. We don't have to have that hanging over us. 
It's a reality, but it isn't the last word. For we have the hope, the power of God available for us. And this truth then is to sink down and shape our lives so we live in it. It isn't to be a thought that's on the bookshelf, but one that really does shape and form our lives. So we, through Christ, have a relationship with God through Jesus. We've been reconciled through his death, burial, and resurrection. And when we put our faith in him, we reconciled. And that reconciliation, peace with God, that relationship with God, then works in our lives today to transform how we interact with one another and how we respond out of faith in God. So the resurrection is that which changes us and allows us to have that relationship with God and transforms our relationship with one another. We want to consider that with a few verses here in 15 verses 29 through 34 as Paul continues to speak about the resurrection. And in that, it shows us that the resurrection demands our belief, not just our knowledge about, but our belief, our, how we live out our faith. And here's what some of these verses that we've seen before that establish it. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. But then in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, meaning us, that we will rise with Christ, that we will also share in that resurrection. So that it isn't just Jesus and it stops there, but it's for us as well. And Paul wants us to be where we stand. Maybe an example, tax day, as we talked about Alan and, and, and his situation here, and Adam, I should say Adam, in his situation about the IRS. But tax day is December, uh, April 15th, and just a few weeks ago, we filed our taxes and got it done. And, you know, paid money if you had to, or get it back if you're fortunate in that situation. But we send the government, we send the information, fill out the correct forms. But how would it work? How would it work if in filing your taxes, you had this as your instructional booklet? If you were going to file your taxes in 2019, and you had this instructions, hey, it's an IRS instructional booklet, so great. There's one problem. It's dated. It's dated 21 years ago. It's from 1998. And if you had the 1998 tax instructions, it's going to cause you difficulties, isn't it? Because especially this past year, we had a lot of changes in the tax code for 2018. And if you use this, it's not going to make a lot of sense. You're going to be confused about what you can claim deductions or what you can do or where you fill things in because it isn't the word, the truth for this year. This was true in a sense, but for a past year. But it isn't the truth for this year. It was a limited instruction. We need something greater, something more. We need a current instruction. Use an outdated guide. You'll miss important items. You may miss a tax credit here, not get the break because of business over here. You may violate IRS regulations for how taxes are accounted because you didn't know or maybe you failed to accept the current situation. We'd all agree that to do it this way would be silly and foolish. But the reality, this is what we're doing if we live our lives apart from the knowledge, the truth, the basis of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
We are just as silly as using an old thing if we don't live on it because it's the truth of the universe. It's the truth of God and what he has done for you and me, that Jesus is alive. And if we, like so many around us, live like he's not alive, our lives are going to be changed in a, for the worse. We're going to miss out on what God wants to do for this world, for our lives here today, and for eternity. I uh, came across an article a few years old, but about a group of scholars that had done some work, and they wanted to dismantle the historic truths of the Christian faith, and I don't know how they can call themselves theologians in that, but they still do. And one of them, his statement was, we need to demote Jesus. That was his statement. Jesus needs to be demoted from a divine figure who saves people and resurrected to just a, you know, teacher of the day. Think, wow. That's what he's saying that we need. We need to demote Jesus. We need, like Paul says, these false teachers to uphold them. Demoting Jesus... What we see in the scriptures, what we see from God, what we see in the, revel in, in the revelation of what God has done for us is we need to elevate Jesus. Jesus deserves to be elevated because he is God who died and rose again. He needs, he deserves elevation in our respect, our worship, not demotion into a mere teacher. The truth of the resurrection, Paul explains, demands our belief that Jesus died and rose again. It demands that we, we know it, we understand it, and we commit ourselves to live it out, that we not be ignorant of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. In this culture that Paul's writing, he writing to the church in Corinth some 25 years after Jesus' resurrection. And he says that there's still, the message in the church has grown, but there still are false teachers, as there are in our day, that try to defeat the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul says it's more than just knowing it. We have to live it out. We have to live out its truth. For the resurrection of Jesus demands our belief, our acceptance, our acknowledgement of who he is and what he has done. It's crucial for that. It also decrees our motivation, resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus who died and rose again. Besides the, the, the essential that we believe and live our belief, that it's living within us, it decrees how we're motivated, what moves us, and what we work. Here's what Paul goes on to say. Now, if there's no resurrection, what about those who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. And here we have Paul bringing up this odd practice, talking about the baptism for the dead. This kind of comes out of nowhere in, in 1 Corinthians 15 because you think, what in the world is Paul referencing here? But there was a practice by some. It wasn't prescribed by the apostles or Jesus or the, the scriptures, but some developed a practice where those who believed in Christ but had died but had never been baptized, they baptized for them. 
And so this is what Paul is using this, not to say in encouraging the practice, but he's using a practice that some used in the church to say, why would they do this unless there was resurrection, unless they believed in it? There'd be no value, no purpose of it. So he's using this as evidence that points to the reality of the resurrection. Not that this is a practice that we should emulate or, or hold. And it's not baptized for people or dead who didn't know Christ, but it was specifically some believers who did this. But Paul holds this up and says, why did, this, why did they do this? It's because there was the resurrection. This is true. Whether it's AD 59 or AD 2019, that Jesus, who is dead, is alive. And even what the church, the early church did, points to that. Baptism, being baptized into Christ. I mean, the whole idea of baptism speaks to the death and resurrection. Baptism, where what? We're put under the water. We're buried like we're buried in the ground. We're in there. And then we're raised back to life. In other words, we come up out of the, out of the ground. We come up out of the water. The very practice of, of baptism by immersion is representative of Jesus' death and resurrection and how we are with him in his death and resurrection. I mean, it all speaks to what Jesus has done for us, not metaphorically, but in physical reality. And baptism is, in fact, meaningless apart from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's, there's no sense to it unless this has taken place. Paul goes on to illustrate another thing. He says, we endanger ourselves every hour. Paul speaks about what he goes through, what he experiences because he's saying, why would I do this? Why would I endanger myself every hour of every day unless the reality of the resurrection? For remember, Paul saw the resurrected Christ. He had personal experience with Jesus who is dead and now is alive. And Paul says that we endanger ourselves every hour. We face death every day. Just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus, I Lord. Why does he do this? Well, then... Here's some of the things, what Paul says with faces. Here's some of his recounting his experiences, what he's referencing here in 1 Corinthians 15. I worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I've shipwrecked. I've spent a night and day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move, been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at the sea, and in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and have gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Why would you allow yourself to be whipped 39 times, beaten with rods, shipwrecked, and I've counted in the book of Acts eight times there was a threat of death, a, a death warrant put on Paul. Why would you do this if the resurrection of Jesus Christ wasn't true? <laughs> you, even a crazy person wouldn't do this. There's absolutely no explanation other than Paul experienced the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. I'm in danger every hour. He's using this to point to us so that 
we in the church will not believe the lies, the false teaching that is too prevalent, even by those who consider themselves Christians, that Jesus didn't physically rise from the dead to live forevermore, and that so shall we who believe in him. This is so crucial. Paul says, I'll experience it all. I'll go through all that for you, for the churches, because this is of key importance. Then Paul goes on to speak. If we look down in verse 32, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained if the dead are not raised? And then he references being in Ephesus, where Paul was stationed by God for some 18 months, and he experienced all sort of opposition. And he said, I fought wild beasts. I don't think he means literally wild beasts, like boars and apes and lions, but he's talking about those who are opposed to the message of God, because there was a strong contingency of believers because the temple of Artemis was close by. And people who worshiped that opposed Paul strongly. And he says, why would I do this unless the resurrection of Jesus Christ was true? And here's a picture of the, the amphitheater in, in Ephesus. And if you've been there, it's really quite a place. I, I had the privilege of being there a number of years ago and standing there and just hearing and seeing and, and thinking 2,000 years ago, Paul stood here. Well, people chanted, chanted against him. They wanted to tear him limb for limb. Why did Paul go through all this? Because his life was committed to the resurrection of Christ, this truth that was transforming him, and he wants us to be transformed by. Paul makes clear the importance of the resurrection. So, so what what impact does the resurrection have on our life? Because the resurrection is truth. We can, we can know it intellectually and hold to it, but how does it affect our lives? How does it impact how we live? And I want us to think and reflect just for a, for a few moments. What is its impact? What impact does the resurrection have on my life and how I interact with my family, how I work? how I use my time, spend my money, all these things. Does the resurrection, what Christ has done for us, is it a shaping? Is it a transforming part of how we live? For that's what Paul is saying it did for him and it's to do for us. It's what God has, what he has done for us. The resurrection should be something which is daily impacting how you and I live and what we live for. For Paul says, I die every day. What's his impact? Is it little impact or is it impact that changes and we think and we reflect on everything we do if we were to rate ourselves on the scale? For the resurrection truly does change everything. It demonstrates God's intent of the future and life for you and for me. God calls us to live for him. As Christians, we live for Christ today and for eternity. And this life is motivated by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it, third, it demolishes our disobedience. The resurrection, it demolishes anything we would have to say, well, I don't have to obey God or I can do it my way. No, the resurrection shows us that, that any kind of thought process that would say, well, no, nah, I don't have to listen to God. I can do my own thing is demolished because of what Jesus has done for you and I, how he has changed us. Paul continues, verses 32 through 34. Talked about if 
If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with more, no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God, and I say this to your shame. Now, this is all in the context of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he quotes some of the poetry of his day, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die, with the whole idea, if there's no future, if there is nothing beyond this life, what is better than to eat and drink for tomorrow we die? In other words, find pleasure in this life because there is nothing more. But if there is something more, if there is more, then it makes a difference of how we live. We don't live just to ourselves for pleasure, but we live to God. And the whole idea of don't be misled, bad company corrupts good character, that's talking about those false teachers who denied the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who wanted to demote Jesus rather than elevate Christ. Anyone who wants to demote Jesus, they are not worth listening to, period. There is no other discussion. Because Jesus Christ who died and rose, God who loves us with that great love, needs to be elevated and glorified and worshiped. So he's, Paul is pleading, come back to your senses as you ought. Don't sin. Live in light of the resurrection. Let's not be with those who are ignorant of God and live that way. Let's live in light of what Jesus has done for us. That's why the resurrection is so crucial. It changes everything. So the reasons for anything that we would give as reasons for our disobedience have been demolished. Because we have something more, so much more. And the church of Christ, the people of God, need to reflect Jesus and what he has done. If there's no basis for the church in Corinth's sin, and there's no good basis for us here at Mercy Commons to be, to be in sin either. The resurrection has demolished any reason, philosophical or practical, for living in sin or being outside the will of God in his truth. And as it demolishes our disobedience, it also positively as it transforms us, he changes our lives. And because it is, he directs our living. Jesus directs our living. As it demolishes any reason or argument we'd have for disobedience, it directs our living. It shows how we are to live in reality. In other words, Paul says, come to your senses, sober up, leave your drowning of hopelessness. Come to the resurrection life and live sober, alert, in the glory of the resurrection of Christ and what future God has for you because of what Jesus Christ has done. We're to be people that it directs our lives in all things. There is a, there's a man, John Thomas, that I got to know a number of years ago. And he was a, a big, strong African-American man who grew up in North Minneapolis. And he grew up in a tough situation. And he got into uh, drugs and alcohol and spent some time in jail. But one day when he was a young adult, he encountered Jesus Christ. The dead, buried, and resurrected Jesus Christ. And his life was transformed. He put his faith in Christ. And this man's life was changed. And John and his wife, they got married, 
they started a ministry called Glory Bound some 20, 25 years ago, kind of North Minneapolis, working with, with kids and teenagers to help them with their struggles and help them to understand there's, there's, there's hope, there's life in Christ. And he started in his garage. He didn't have much, but he started in his garage. And he was making an impact in people's lives. Kids and families were being positively impacted. And the ministry grew, and there was good things going on, and we were able to partner with him when we was at First Covenant, partner with him in the glory bound for a while. And then in his 40s, his kind of hard living from when he was real young caught up with him. And eventually it, it, caught, it took his life, and he died in his late 40s. But here's a man whose life was radically changed and transformed. So someone who is living to self found Christ and started to live to overflow the blessing that he experienced for others. And so he had an impact on families and kids for all eternity because he was transformed and changed by the resurrected Christ, by the encounter with him. I think John is such a good example of, of what this means, that wherever God has us in life, it's transforming and changing. It changes us from focusing on ourselves to seeing ourselves in light of what Jesus has done and living out his purpose and his mission for us here is together and in our lives. It directs our living because we have such a glorious hope in the future. This changes us that Jesus is alive. Just some of the implications of the resurrection. God is a God of the living who's alive. He's sovereign over all things things that we experience, things that are in the future. And God's the guarantor of our resurrection as Jesus was the first fruits, the promise of what's to come. God's forgiven our sins, praise be to his name. And he has that power available for us. And God holds the ultimate victory for you and for me. You know, the IRS can't get Adam Ronning's situation in life whether he's dead or alive, right? But praise God, Jesus knows exactly where we're at in life. He who died and rose again wants us to live as resurrected people who, who because we have faith in Christ, that we have experienced the resurrection for this life and the life to come. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your kindness, your goodness, your glory, your love to us. That Though we, are, we were sinners, Jesus died for us to forgive us our sins and to give us hope in the future. Thank you, Lord, that the resurrection is for us who believe. Lord, we can live the resurrected life starting today, knowing that death is just from life to greater life. What a hope, what a future. Lord, use this to shape and form our lives so that we live as Jesus lived, as Paul lived, as those who have committed themselves to Christ, as living with future life, enduring hope in Jesus. We love you and praise you. Thank you for this hope in our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.